scripture reading this morning comes from our scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 For this reason I Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. Well, when I read a passage like this, I get pretty excited because this is a passage that reminds me of how dynamic, how radical the church can be. What we're looking at here, what we are are part of here in this room is nothing short of a total universe-wide revolution. And so we need a passage like this. We need a passage like this today because I'm afraid that we have lost sight of what the church is supposed to be, that we've lost sight of what the church really is. A few years ago, Saturday Night Live, they did a fake commercial for a Christmas Eve service, Um, and it was a commercial kind of done in that monster truck voice style, and it was advertising all the great things you're going to get to be a part of if you go to the Christmas Eve service. It said, it's time for your annual trip to church with your parents. And when you get there, you'll sing songs you don't know the words to and have sweaty-palmed handshakes with people you don't know. It's a skit that I think, you know, it's pretty funny, but it also is one of those skits that hits a little too close to home because it, it reminds me of what the church has become, what the church has become to the world that it is this outdated kind of social event, this outdated group 
that, that meets still somehow in the 21st century. But I'm standing up here this morning because I believe in the church. I'm standing up here this morning because I know that when the Holy Spirit starts to move, the church, even, I mean, this church, is God's uniquely ordained, his chosen vessel to change the world. Now, I know I've been at church for a lot of years. I know sometimes church, it can be boring. (laughs) It can be discouraging. It can feel dead. It can be divisive. It can feel like a lifeless place, but, but it's not supposed to be. And when we understand what God is doing here, when we start to live it out, then we find out the church is actually the opposite of those things. The church, what I want to tell you this morning, is the church is the place where we experience the power of God, redeeming lives, healing families, uniting people together, transforming the city around us. And so today, that's what I want us to do. I want us just to understand what the church is and how it is meant to change our lives. And there's three things that this passage shows us. It shows us first that the church is the climax of God's redemptive plan. Secondly, it tells us that the church is where we experience the power of God today. And thirdly, it says that that power, the power of the church, gets unleashed when spirit-transformed people start to live out the gospel together. So let's get right into it. The, the church is the climax of God's redemptive plan. It's what Paul says. He, it's the mystery revealed. So we're studying Ephesians. We've been studying it for a few weeks now. It's a letter, and we're in chapter 3 of this letter. And Paul opens up chapter 3 talking about this mystery. Now, it's something he's been talking about the whole time. You might remember, it's the, the idea of the mystery of God's plan is the main theme of this letter. Paul wants us to know that God has finally revealed the mystery of his plan. He tells us in chapter 1 that this is the mystery to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's God's big plan. He's going to unite everything in heaven and on earth under Christ. But here in chapter 3, he digs a little deeper. He tells us more about it. He says in verse 6, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes it can be hard to preach through Paul's letters. There's a lot of doctrine. They're pretty dense. There's a bunch of theology in there. Sometimes you don't know what to emphasize as a preacher because there's so much. But not this passage. Paul makes it pretty clear what the point uh, is in this passage. Do you see it right there? I made it pretty clear for you. He repeats the same word over and over and over again. Together, 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 right? Why don't you all say that? Together. Together, together. That's the point he wants to make. This is the big mystery. 
Jews and Gentiles, two groups of people that could not be any further apart. God's chosen people in the world and everybody else are now united to one another through Jesus. Now, quickly let me talk about this idea of a mystery. What does it mean that Paul says this is a mystery revealed? What does it not mean that he says it's a mystery revealed? It's worth mentioning because a lot of times as a pastor, people will come up to me and with questions. One question I get a lot is, what happened to the people that lived in the Old Testament? What happened to these heroes that lived before Jesus? Did, when they died, did, did they go to hell or... Were they saved in some other way? Were they saved because they were good people and, and followed the law? Was, was it different back then? Well, the answer to that question is no. Under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, people were saved back then the exact same way they are saved now. They were saved by faith in God's promise of a Redeemer. So if you read the book of Romans... Paul talks about Abraham, and Abraham is one of the main figures in the book of Genesis, right at the very beginning of the Bible. And he says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you remember that? What did Abraham believe? Well, he believed God's promise that someday from his line, there was going to come someone who was going to bless the whole world, that all the nations would be blessed through him. Now, could Abraham tell you all the stories of Jesus' life, the facts of his death and his resurrection? No, he couldn't. But Jesus' blood was just as much the source of his salvation as it is ours. All those sacrifices that you see in the Old Testament, the only reason those sacrifices were effective is because they were all pointing to the one true sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that actually took away our sins. So God's salvation, is, it's a mystery revealed, but it's not a new plan. God's only had one plan the whole time, and that is to save all people through Jesus Christ. Now, to say it's a mystery is to say we understand it fully now, but there are hints of this all over scripture. There are hints of this all throughout the Old Testament. One of those passages is in the prophet Micah. He's talking about a day at the end when many nations will come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. There are these prophecies all over the Old Testament of the nations coming in to be a part of God's people. So all this to say Jesus and the church, that's not plan B. It's been the plan all along. And, and you and I, we're blessed because we get to see it. We are blessed. You know, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about this, that we are more blessed than even the greatest saints in the Old Testament because they believed, but they believed the promise. They believed these promises that were off at a distance, but we get to live in them. We get to experience them. 
we are living in the climax of God's plan for salvation. And what's that plan again? Well, it's unity, true unity of all people under the lordship of Jesus. It's what we read about last week. Do you remember when Robert preached on this? He said, Christ himself is our peace who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He says, in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So this mystery, it's not just that God opened this kind of back door and now a few of us can kind of sneak in to be a part of God's people as some kind of secondhand citizens, but it says that he broke down the walls. He obliterated every barrier, and then he rebuilt it into something new. He is rebuilding us together into a temple where his living spirit dwells. And there's more than that. What did it say in verse 6? It says we are heirs together. We fully inherit the kingdom. We're members of one body together. We are actually united. We're sharers together of the promise. The promise belongs to us. We're not an afterthought, but it, it fully is ours. And again, what's the promise? It's the promise of salvation. It's the promise that that one day we will live in a reality where everyone is united in the worship of God. All people together, free from pain and suffering and fear and death, free from anxiety in the presence of God. What the mystery is not that God has a people, okay? We, we know God has a people. Ever since the book of Genesis, we've known that God has this special chosen people. But the mystery is that we can all be a part of God's people. We can all join God's covenant people. The mystery is that this divided world is going to end. And we are divided, right? We feel the pain of the division we're living in, don't we? We are divided by race. We're divided by class. We're divided by culture. Not only that, but we, we define ourselves by what divides us. And I wish I could say I'm just talking about the world out there, but it's just as much true in the church as anywhere else. Emo Phillips, if you remember him, he had this joke where he said, I was walking along the road one day and I saw this guy standing at the bridge and he was getting ready to jump. And I said to him, no, 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 don't do it. And the guy said, why shouldn't I? What is there to live for? He said, well, are you a a person of faith? Yes, I am. Well, me too. Well, are you a a Buddhist or are you a Christian? He says, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, me too. Are you a Catholic or are you a Protestant? And he says, I'm a Protestant. Well, well, me too. Are you Episcopalian or or are you Baptist? 
He says, I'm Baptist. He says, oh, me too. Are you a fundamentalist Baptist or are you a reformed Baptist? He said, well, I'm a reformed Baptist. And he said, well, me too. Are you a reformed Baptist church of God or a reformed Baptist church of our Lord? Reformed Baptist church of God. He's like, well, well, me too. He said, are you reformed Baptist church of God reformation of 1879? Or are you reformed Baptist church of God reformation of 1915? And he says, I'm reformed Baptist church of God reformation of 1915. And the guy says, die, you heretic. (laughs) We're divided. In the church, we're divided. We have defined ourselves by our division. But the mystery revealed is that anyone who takes the name of Jesus gains a new identity. And I want to be clear, it's not an identity that erases our old distinctions. The people who were Jews did not stop being Jews. The people who were Gentiles did not stop being Gentiles. But what happened was that that Christ came and gave them an identity big enough to hold both of those things. That means for us today, you can be a Christian Democrat and you can be a Christian Republican. It means you can be a Christian from Israel and you can be a Christian from Palestine. It means you can be a Christian Pentecostal, and you can be a Christian Presbyterian. It means that you can be a Christian who marches with Black Lives Matter, and you can be a Christian who hangs a flag with a blue line down the middle. But whoever you are, Jesus has a place for you in his church. I really like the way one pastor put it. He said, it has, this is the mystery. Here it is. It has always been God's plan to have one big, united, diverse family to delight in forever. That's the mystery revealed. It has always been the plan for him to have one big, united, diverse family to delight in forever. And the church, the church is the climax of God's plan for salvation. That's the first point. Now, if that's true, then that means the church is also the place where we are supposed to experience the power of God today. Right? All this stuff, it sounds beautiful. It sounds maybe too good to be true, right? For us all to be together in unity kind of like a pie-in-the-sky dream. There's no place on earth where you have that kind of unity. But there is. It's the church. Or at least it should be. If you read through this passage, one of the things that just knocks me on the floor is how much Paul believes in the church. Verse 10, he says that it is God's intent that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Through the church, the wisdom of God should be made known to the world and beyond. This might be a good moment for us to remember that 
This is a letter, right? And this letter was not sent to just one person, but it was sent to the church. It was sent to a church. I mentioned a few weeks ago, this, this letter wasn't written to you, it was written to y'all. And so these promises that we read, they aren't just individual promises. When we read that Christ himself is our peace, that doesn't mean that Christ is your peace. And he's your peace, and he's your peace, and he's my peace. He's, he's our inner peace. That might be how we read it today, but that's not what it means. It means that Christ is literally our peace together. He has given us peace with God and peace with one another by tying us together for all eternity. When Paul says that you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens, it's not that you were a stranger and you were a stranger and you were a stranger, now you're united to God. But it's that we all were strangers from one another and from God, and he has now made us citizens together of his kingdom. He's building us together into one body. That's an amazing thing. Now, I know that this red carpet, you know, it doesn't look like much to some of us. I know that these wooden pews, they're uncomfortable. I know that some of you, you may not like my preaching. Or maybe you don't enjoy the songs that we sing here. But don't get distracted by your individual experience. Do you realize what we're doing here right now? Do you realize what we are a part of at this moment? You are in the midst of a people that God has said are going to dwell together forever. This is an amazing convention of eternal souls. People who will worship God, who will declare the victory of Jesus long after this world is gone. It's astonishing to think about that, especially when we start to compare it to the way we think about church. I was looking at a Bible study this week that kind of had some lists comparing the ways we think about church with the way Scripture describes it. And there were some really interesting things in there. It said that most people, when they think of church, they think of church as perhaps a social outlet, a place to see your friends. Or maybe they think about it like a a spiritual pick-me-up, a place to come and get a little boost. Or perhaps we see the church as one of many helpful resources that we have as we try to follow Jesus. Maybe church is a habit. Maybe church is a duty. Maybe you think of the church as a relic of days that have already passed. Or or maybe for some of you right now, church is an endurance test. How long do we have to do this before we can go to the picnic? But I want to say all of these things, even the good ones, they are individualistic ways of viewing the church. 
human-centered ways of understanding this place. But what does Paul say? What did we just read? He says the church, instead of being those things, the church is the end of all earthly divisions. He says the church is the purpose of our redemption, that we would be together worshiping as a people forever. He says the church is the hidden mystery of God revealed to the world in this moment. The church is the place to access God. It is a witness to the heavenly places. It's the breakdown of hostility. He says the church is the temple, the true temple that lasts forever. It's a place where God dwells. That means the church is not a building, right? The church is not an event that takes place at at 10.30 on a Sunday. The church is a gathering of redeemed souls who are, in this moment, living out their redeemed lives in community, not just one day a week, but seven days a week, all the time, testifying to the world. We are the visible proof, the living experience of what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be accepted, what it means to live every day knowing that you are at peace with God and at peace with each other. Do you understand? The church is the place that we experience the power of God. And that brings me to the third point. That power gets unleashed when people who have been transformed by God's spirit start to live out the gospel. So remember the word together? Together, that's the theme, together. That's the mystery, right? Together, that we can all be one. But here's the reality. Church is messy, right? Church... It's painful sometimes. If you're down on the church, I get it. If you look around at the church and you see unholy things happening and you're critical of the church, I don't blame you. In fact, I'd say you're in good company. Jesus was pretty critical of the church too. In fact, one time he even literally whipped people out of the building (laughs) because they had made his uh, house... Uh, into a place of business instead of a house of of prayer. I know that it sounds inspiring to read the theology. But then we deal in reality. We have to live with the sin of the church. So the question is, how do we get out of that? How do we move out of all the petty stuff that keeps us from being what we're supposed to be? How do we move out of the social cliques and the backstabbing and and the gossiping? How do we move out of the self-righteous attitudes, the the holier-than-thou approach to the world around us? How do we break out of this 
culture that we're in that is so divided that tells us that we need to be divided too. How do we stop judging people for those cultural differences who maybe aren't just like us? How do we learn to really love people who, who don't look like us or express their worship of Jesus exactly the way we do? Well, I think the answer here is in verse 7. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Okay, so who was Paul? He was an apostle. He wrote a big chunk of the Bible. He was probably the most impactful missionary who has ever lived. He was probably the man who reached his community more successfully than anyone else has ever done. And he describes himself as being less than the least of all the Lord's people. The Greek word there is kind of unique because it's, it's like he says, leastest. He takes the superlative and he goes even further. He, he takes least and then he says a word that means even less than that. Paul was humble. Paul was really humble. He didn't just give lip service to humility. He didn't do that thing that some of us Christians can do. You know what I'm talking about where where you act like you're listening. You, you're kind. You don't say to someone's face, oh, I don't agree with anything you're saying, but you're really not considering it at all. Our call to worship this morning was from 1 Timothy, another one of these passages where Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. Christ came for sinners, and I'm the worst of them. Paul was a holy man. Don't be fooled. Paul was a godly man. And yet, he showed over and over again that he really knew the depth of the sin that was in his heart. He knew that he did not deserve God's favor. He knew that if he was going to be saved, he could only be saved by grace. And that's what drove him to share the gospel. That's what propelled him throughout his life to declare this great mystery that God was continuing this work, that he was rescuing people like him, sinners who don't deserve it. And if you're in Christ, that's who you are. You're a sinner who doesn't deserve to know God. Do you know that? You were an alien. You were a stranger. You were an illegal immigrant. And God made you a citizen. He put you right next to Jesus. And not only that, he made you an heir to his throne. Humility is the only way forward 
if we want to reach this world. Real humility. We have to believe, just like Paul believed, that we're less than the least, that we are the worst sinners, not just on earth, but actually literally that we're the worst ones in the room. Because if we believe that, well, there's some practical implications, right? Because it means if there's conflict, then, well, it means, well, it's likely that you're the problem, right? If I believe that I'm the worst sinner, then it means if I'm having trouble, maybe the problem starts with me. It means my opinion could very well be wrong. Whether I'm talking about what color the carpet should be or who should lead the country or what's the best style of music. We cannot approach the world with arrogance. And we certainly cannot approach each other that way. If we want to experience the power we're talking about, if this is going to be that place of power, if we want to know the power of God at work in our city, then it needs to begin with us humbly laying our lives down for each other and loving each other. And I'm not going to lie, that's going to be hard for some of you. Because you really think you're right. And so do I. We think we're right. We really believe that we're right. But I want to challenge you that, that when you're in that place of conflict, when you're in that place where you are so convinced of your own rightness, of your own righteousness, I want you to consider Jesus, who actually was right, who actually was righteous. And yet, you know what? Scripture even tells us he was equal with God. He was God himself, and still he humbled himself. And he became a servant, and he died for you in your wrongness <laughs> so that you could be brought into his family. I wonder what God could do with us if we walked out of this place with that same heart. If we walked out of this place declaring, yes, I am less than the least. I don't know all of you. I don't know what's going on in your lives, but I wonder, is there maybe someone in your life who needs to hear that from you? And if there's anybody here, I want to mention this as well. There's someone here who maybe doesn't know Jesus. Let me just add, this is a step that we all have to take. The only thing that Christ requires of you is that you would admit that you can't do anything. <laughs> that you would admit that you can't save yourself, that you fall desperately short, that you've got nothing to offer. But the good news is if you come to him that way, he will welcome you this morning. And for all the Christians here in this room, I just say the exact same thing. What if we all came to him that way today? 
What if we all came to him with that thought in common? What could God do with us? If we said to him, I have nothing to offer. All I need is you. How would that impact our neighbors? How would that impact the world around us? When we live lives of gospel humility, it is radical. It is disruptive. It's explosive. It's a force that could really change the world because only Jesus himself could make a community like that. Only the power of the Holy Spirit at work could make us into a community that lives like that. Would you pray with me that God would do that? Father, thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, I I confess uh, as I read this passage that I aspire to be as humble as Paul, but I am not. I aspire to believe that I'm the biggest sinner in the room, but the truth is I don't. I think maybe I'm the, the fourth worst sinner And so, God, I pray that that you would change my heart and that you would change the hearts of everyone here. Lord, that we would know how desperately we need you, and not just you, but how much we need each other. God, would you give us eternal eyes to see our neighbors? Would you help us to love one another? And would you bring us that power that would transform this place, this city, this world? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.